Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and give, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Jerry, and Mindy, and everybody else who serves uh, on these Sunday mornings. Um, For you who are native to Colorado, um, you don't know how spoiled you are by the sun. I mean, you say you do. You say you know how sunny it is here and how wonderful that is. Um, But you cannot really understand it until you go to a place and you spend real time in a place that doesn't see the sun for months on end. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, You all know I moved here from Boston. And in New England, you will go in the winter seven, eight, nine weeks without sun. Just cloudy, dreary, overcast. Um, We have friends and family living in the Pacific Northwest and all along the East Coast. And man, y'all just have no idea, if you've been here forever, um, how that affects you. So you know, you, you end up with entire cultures that deal with seasonal affective disorder. Just everybody's angry, everybody's upset. I'm convinced that a lot of the reason New England has this reputation for being mean and crusty is just because of the winters, right? Just because of those weeks and weeks and weeks with no sun, just clouds. Um, and when you're living there, in these places that are gloomy and dreary and where people are just crusty because they're upset because they haven't had sunlight or vitamin D in months, you meet someone who's warm and friendly and smiles at you and they are a bright point of light. They're like a bowl of chicken soup on a cold day. Meeting someone in those places who is really warm and inviting and kind in the midst of the dreariness of that season uh, is real light to your darkness. I imagine that that's what Jesus wants us to be all the time everywhere. Because we live in a world where everybody is affected by seasonal affective disorder. Everybody's affected by what we call the fall Everyone is affected by sin. We live in a dark world, a world that has been made dark by our own ignorance of God or rejection of God, our own sinfulness. Everything in us that isn't holy like God, everything in us that isn't like Jesus is sin and brings about the darkness of the world. All the pain and darkness that we see around us. And Jesus, I think, imagines that his church will be like those people in the middle of winter in Boston who still show up with a smile and a warm word for you. I imagine that when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, he wants his people to be that breath of fresh air in the midst of 
the darkness and the misery of a sin-filled, sin-stained, broken world. That's what God is calling us to. That's what Jesus is calling us to. I think that's what he means when he says, you're the light of the world. And that's why we start here in John. Because here at the tail end of this Advent season, we're still celebrating the inbreaking of the light. We've lit this Advent candle every day, every week for the past uh, four weeks, celebrating the light breaking into a dark world. Celebrating the light of the world coming into the midst of our darkness and bringing us peace, bringing us comfort, bringing us hope, bringing us truly light in the darkness. And that's why we start in John chapter 1 today, where we read these verses and John is, John is such an interesting writer. He, this is such an interesting gospel. You may have heard before that John is the simplest Greek in all the New Testament. If you didn't hear it before, now you've heard it. The, the New Testament is written in Greek because it was written in a Roman world where Greek was the language that was spoken across the empire. Um, here's, here's a little tidbit. right? In the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, most people were multilingual and not just two like three or four languages, because they had to know them. So if you're ever tempted to think, man, those primitive older people, they just weren't that intelligent and didn't know that much. Remember, they spoke more language than any of you do, most likely. I don't know everybody's, right? But I'm just guessing, as Americans in this room, most of us are not tri- and quadlingual, right? In Jesus' world, you kind of had to be. You had to be able to speak Greek, and then you spoke whatever local language you had, and then you might speak a different language for your religious life. So if you were a Jew growing up in Palestine at the time, you would speak Greek in order to do the business of the world. You would speak Aramaic because that was actually the language that was spoken among your peers. And then you might also speak Hebrew because that's the language of your religion. That's the language of the temple. And so you've got to know all this stuff. So John, when he's writing, is writing in a very simple style. He's writing at a low grade level in Greek, so anybody can access it. And he uses simple word pictures over and over and over again to really help draw us into the story of Jesus. Each one of the New Testament writers has kind of these conventions or these ways of using language that are unique to them. Uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, uses the word immediately or then all the time. He uses it to, to move forward the action. John writes with these big-scale metaphors of life and of light and of love all through his gospel. And he writes them in such simple language that anyone can get them. Now, that's probably because John himself was a fisherman. And John was a little kid when he was chosen to follow Jesus, maybe 11 or 12. The apostles, you, you got you to think of the apostles not as like gray-bearded old guys, Peter was probably the oldest, which is why he gets to be made the leader. Peter is married because he has a mother-in-law. Peter probably has kids. That makes him like a grandpa among the apostles. The rest of them, they're like teenagers. So Jesus is calling these young dudes, because that's what you do as a rabbi. You call young dudes to come and follow you to learn your way of life before they're grown up and they're set in their ways. And so John starts following Jesus when he's a kid, maybe prepubescent. 11 years old, and he's grown up following Jesus. It's also why he's the last apostle to die, and he can live well into the 90s AD because he was so young when he started following Jesus. And so 
John writes in simple Greek for anybody to understand because he's writing for himself. He's writing so he can understand, so fishermen boys like him can get it. And he starts off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now let's stop there for a second, because I just told you, John is writing in a really simple style, and he just made one of the most profound statements ever made in history. This guy wrote with a simple style, and yet wrote with a depth of knowledge of Jesus, and a depth of understanding about Jesus that the most educated people of his day didn't have. Because he walked with him, and he knew him. And so when John says right here at the beginning, in the beginning, he's pulling back to Genesis chapter 1. He's pulling back to the very beginning of the Bible, which is the very beginning of time itself. And he's saying Jesus was always there. There's never a time when the Son was not. There's never a time when Jesus was not. He has always been. He was never created. He was never made He never came into being. He has always been because he is the word and he is the God who is the word. Now, when Jesus, when John says that he was in the beginning and the word was with God and the word was God, what he's saying here is that this person who was in the beginning and was the word is the very agent by whom God created all things. He's the very revelation of God. He's the very breath of God spoken out, revealing God's character, creating the world. Jesus is the agent of creation. When God speaks, it's Jesus who is his voice. When God speaks, he speaks the word who is also God. And so John's beginning, he's he's just laying the foundation here so that you can understand, hey, the guy I'm about to write about, the guy I'm going to tell you about, this is no mere human being. This is no normal dude. you got to remember everything you read from here on out in the context of this truth, that this guy has always been and is the very word of God made flesh and is, in fact, God himself come to us. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. There is nothing out of his control. There's nothing out of his oversight. There is nothing in this world that Jesus can't see or affect. In him was life. And here we come to the the, the heart of what we're getting at today. In him was life. Now listen to the repetition of words. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So right there in those verses, we've got life, life, light, light, darkness, darkness. And when you read things repeated in the Bible, you need to open your ears. If you're reading your Bible with closed ears or a closed heart, when you hear that repetition, it's a sign. Pay attention. Listen carefully. Don't skim over this. It is essential. And over and over in these first five verses, John has repeated himself. The word, the word, the word, God, 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 created, created, life, life, light, light, darkness, darkness. This is fundamental that we understand this and we grasp it. Because we cannot know who we are if we do not know who Jesus is. We cannot know who we are in Christ If we don't know who Christ is from the beginning, 
If he is merely a man, if he is merely a teacher, if he's merely a rabbi, if he's merely some other person who taught some nice things, we have fundamentally misunderstood him, and therefore we cannot understand ourselves. We've got to go back to the beginning. And so John lets us know, in him was life, and the life was light. And the light shines, because that's what light does. Light that does not shine is not light. It cannot help but shine. And Matthew's going to pick up on this in just a moment when we get to him. But John is saying something really obvious and yet really profound here. Light shines. Light can't not shine. Light can't not dispel the darkness. And so if the battle is between light and darkness, if the choice is between Jesus as the light and the darkness of the world, the light wins every time. Have you ever been in a dark place and lit up a light and nothing happened? It doesn't happen. Light is what it is. And Jesus has no choice but to shine as the light. Jesus has no choice but to dispel darkness. Darkness can't exist in his presence just by its very nature. When Jesus steps onto the scene, the brokenness of the world, our broken world, cowers because it knows it has to be made right. Jesus can't do anything else. He can't do anything else. Now, there's another dimension to this light here. As Jesus comes in and he's shining this light, what exactly does this mean anyway? What does it mean that Jesus is the light? He didn't actually shine when he walked around. Except that one time when he came down from the mountain and he had met with, you know, Moses and then he was shining, right? For more on that, see Mark chapter or something. But Jesus didn't like literally shine as he walked around. Some of us imagine him that way. Some of us imagine him kind of floating along, billowing robe behind him, pronouncing over everyone, you know, shining from his face. And we go, well, how in the world could people reject that? Because he looked like you and me, right? So he didn't literally shine. He didn't have a halo. His face wasn't blowing everybody away with his brightness. So what does it mean that Jesus is the light? I think what John means here and what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is the light is that he is the one who reveals God. He's the one who shines light into dark places, revealing the truth of the world And also revealing to us the character of our God. Light reveals. Light uncovers. Light unhides things. And when we can't physically see our God, when we don't often audibly hear from our God, Jesus comes as the light to reveal to us who our God is. You've heard me say over and over my favorite quote from Martin Luther. Anything we imagine of God apart from Christ is useless thinking and vain idolatry. God is like Jesus. Jesus is like God. What we see in Jesus is the Father revealed, God revealed, all of his character on display for us. And this is, ironically, the thing that got Jesus into trouble. Because people thought they knew God. They thought they knew who God was. They thought they had understood the scriptures and therefore nailed down the character of God. And when Jesus came doing things that they didn't think were in line with their image of God, 
They crucified him for it. They didn't understand who God was. Jesus himself says this later in the Gospel of John. He says, you've neither seen the face of God nor heard the voice of God, which is tantamount to him saying, you don't know God. If that's who you think God is, you don't know him. And then he points to himself and says, the Father is revealed through me. Jesus comes as the light of the world to reveal to us the character of our good God that we have not seen. To show us who God is. That's why Jesus comes. God looks down on his creation and on his people and shakes his head because over and over and over and over throughout history, his very people, the people he called out to be his own, had gotten him wrong. Now, there are some people claiming to follow Jesus today who argue that, you know, doctrine doesn't really matter that much. What we believe about God doesn't really matter that much as long as we love people well. That the character of God, that the things that we believe, the nitty-gritty of what we believe about God doesn't really matter that much as long as we're on this side of this issue or that side of that issue or we love people in this specific way and we don't treat them in that specific way and as long as we're doing these things according to this kind of legalistic standard then you know honestly like the character of God revealed or or the specifics of what we believe we don't have to agree on those things because it's okay now here's the problem with that It's it's a really simple issue to figure out if two of you were here talking about me and you were talking about things I had said or you were talking about something I had done and one of you has one image of me in your head and the other has another image of me in your head and you're disagreeing on kind of what I did or what I said or what the meaning of it was, the, the fact is you're actually talking about two different people. You're not talking about me. You're talking about the me that's in your med, the me that's in your mind. If you can't agree on who you think I am, if you can't agree on the person that you're talking about, then you're talking past each other. We can't actually have a conversation. And if the me in your head is not the me who actually exists, if the me in your head is not the me who who is right here in front of you talking, then we can't really have a relationship either because everything that I say is going to get warped in your mind. Everything that I do is going to get changed according to the image that you have in your head. If that's true of human beings, that in order to actually know one another, to know the one another that actually exists, we have to agree on the character and the personality and the specifics of their lives, how much more does that apply to God? We can't just say anything we want about him. We have to stay true to what he has said about himself, and we have to agree on the basics of who God is just to know that we're talking about the same person. That's why Jesus comes, because there were a lot of people who had a lot of different ideas about who God was, and most of them were not right. And Jesus has to come as the light to reveal to us the true nature and character of our God so we can know who we are talking about when we say that word. So we can know the person who's behind that word. Jesus comes to clarify. 
not to make things foggy. His light drives out the fog. That's why Jesus has come. All too often we focus too much, I think, and I'm going to get in trouble with somebody here, but all too often I think we focus too much on the cross as though that's the only thing Jesus came to do. As though the only thing that mattered was him dying. I once was an undergrad. I went to Bible college before I went to seminary. And in my undergraduate class, it was one of my very first classes, we had to read a book about um, Jesus. And yeah, we had to read a book about Jesus in Bible college. We actually talked about Jesus in Bible college. So our professor asked us the question, why did Jesus come? And having grown up a good evangelical boy, I wrote he came to die, which is what we say all the time. And I failed that paper. My professor said, I don't think you read that book. (laughs) If Jesus only came to die, there are a hundred other ways God could have done that. But he came for so much more. He came to show us who God is. He came to show us the way. This is why the very first followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. The way of Jesus. They walked in his way. They walked in his way of life. They followed him. That's why we call ourselves followers of Jesus. We are not merely people who have said a prayer once upon a time and are now bound for heaven. We are people who walk in and follow in the way of Jesus. And we have to know him in order to be able to do that. Now, the problem is we're really bad at that. We're really bad at that. None of you know, as well as I do, how bad I am at that. And it's my job to help you become better at that. We're really bad at it. And you've got some groups who say, you've got to follow this set of rules and this set of checklists and this set of instructions in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus, and God won't take you if you don't. And we've got others over here who say, you know, as long as you're committed to the right causes of justice, what you do personally doesn't really matter. Personal morality doesn't really matter as long as you are working for the oppressed. And over here we have those who say, well, oppression is really not an issue. It's personal morality only, and that's really what counts and what matters. And so we got people all over the board who can't agree on what constitutes actually following Jesus. And we're really bad at it. And we fight with each other about what it means to follow Jesus. you got those who are on one side, the, the more progressive side, who are saying, hey, your personal morality is nowhere near as important as your commitment to these causes of justice. And I say, absolutely, we must be committed to those causes of justice because Jesus is. But on the other hand, you got people who are saying, well, though justice doesn't really matter. Social justice is not important at all. All that matters is your personal relationship with Jesus and your moral life. To which I say, absolutely, that's true, but we can't drop justice. We have to wed these things together, right? But we got these people who are fighting with one another, arguing with one another, because they can't figure out how to follow Jesus. They can't figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And I think Jesus is standing there in the middle going, good gosh, I came to clear this stuff up. I came to bring light to this situation, and y'all are clouding it up with your darkness. We are really bad at following Jesus because we like to elevate one aspect of following him more than others based on all kinds of different things, almost none of which have to do with scripture. 
based on our cultures, based on where we're from, based on our families, based on our voting, based on whatever, we're fighting over these things not based in Scripture, but based on our own preferences. And to this, I say, we need to look to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Because I think, I think when we understand who Jesus is talking to, when he's talking in Matthew chapter 5, it'll really help us as we badly follow Jesus, as we poorly follow Jesus. So Matthew chapter 5, as Terry read for us in verse 14, this is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is this sermon that Jesus delivered uh, in Galilee, just north of the Sea of Galilee. And he's got this huge crowd gathered around. And this is kind of the concentration of all of Jesus' teaching. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is so important and central in the Christian life. And right at the beginning, Jesus tells this assembled crowd who he does not know personally entirely. This is what he says. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, before we get into the substance of what he's saying, let's just think about who he's saying this to. This is a ragtag group of peasants from Galilee. These are people not the most religious, not the most pure. They are probably very devout Jewish people, and yet their devotion doesn't always look like the Pharisees and the religious leaders want it to look. You get this group called the Pharisees that's kind of the the everyday leaders of the people. They're out and about, they're leading the synagogues, they're teaching the people, and for some reason, a lot of the people just cannot ever measure up to the standards of the Pharisees. Pharisees are the ones who are like, this is how you got to live. This is what you got to do. You got to follow this way. You got to do this thing. You got to follow this rule. You got to follow that rule. And, and no matter what you do, it's, it's almost impossible to really live up to all the rules. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, who would later be called Jesus, says in one of his epistles, um, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I never broke a law. And he says this, not in boasting, but as an exemplary for what his life was like. It was so uncommon to be that devoted. It was so uncommon to be that, that particular in your rule following that he was able to hold it up as a sign of pride before he found Jesus, before Jesus called him. And so you've got these, these leaders among the people who are, who are kind of bearing down on them with these lists of rules that people can't follow, sometimes just because of the circumstances of their lives. They've got jobs, they've got things, they've got responsibilities that cause them to break the Pharisees' law. And as a course of life, they can't. Jesus uses this as an example one time. He says to a group of Pharisees, hey, um, you guys are mad that I healed on the Sabbath, but which one of you, if a sheep fell in a ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't go get it? And Jesus is like, the various circumstances of your life mean that you can't follow your law, and God never intended that. And so these people are kind of living under this burden. And they can't perfectly keep the law. And now they've gathered around because in Jesus they're hearing something different. In Jesus they're hearing a, seeing a new vision of God that they didn't have before. They're seeing the light. They're, they're hearing Jesus and they're like, you're not like these other guys. 
Something's different about the way that you talk about God and the way you honor us. And so these are the people Jesus is talking to when he says, you are the light of the world. And he says this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Not after. The Sermon on the Mount is full of Jesus' teachings about how we should live. In our minds, the way that we think, I think, this should go at the very end. Where he would give all of his instructions for life, and then he would finish with, now if you do this, you are the light of the world. But at the beginning of it, to those who have come to hear Jesus, to those who have simply come to sit at his feet and receive his instructions, to this ragtag group of peasants, uneducated, devout, but not perfect in their keeping of the law, Jesus says to them, you are the light of the world. And to you, church, I say, you are the light of the world. You are here. You have come to the feet of Jesus. You have come to submit to his word. You have come to hear what he has to say. And to you, I say, you are the light of the world. No matter where you're from, no matter what your background, no matter what struggles you've had, no matter how well you've kept God's law, no matter how much you've tried to bargain with God in the past, God, if you'll just do this, I'll just do that. No matter what your state of mind or of heart, you are the light of the world. Jesus begins with that affirmation, and so will I. Before you have done anything, by coming to Jesus, receiving his light, you are the light of the world. Now, this doesn't mean there aren't responsibilities. This doesn't mean Jesus doesn't call us to a way of life. I just told you, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. And then he goes on for these next two and a half chapters to tell you what that means. It's kind of like the beginning of the movie Dangerous Minds. Ever seen the movie Dangerous Minds? 1992 or something like that. Michelle Pfeiffer plays a teacher. She's a former Marine, and now she's a substitute teacher. And she goes to work at this, city, this uh, school in Chicago. And this, I think it's Chicago. And um, this is like one of the most difficult schools in the district, right? And she's going into sub there. As a, as a white Marine, she's going to teach this class that is, I, I don't know how they describe the class, but it's supposed to be like the delinquents of the school, right? These are not well-performing kids. These are the, the behavior problems. These are the ones nobody else can deal with. And she, the white Marine lady, is given this class of mostly black kids who are struggling and she didn't know what to do with them and finally one day a light bulb goes off and she asks the class she she comes into the class because she's had a conversation with one of the kids and she realizes like these kids have never had anyone speak any good over them they've never had anybody say well done to them struggle they've worked hard maybe or maybe they haven't worked hard because no one has ever said well done and so a light bulb goes off, and, and she comes into the classroom, and she says, we're going to start differently. From now on, all of you have an A. All you got to do is keep it. But from this moment on, all of you got an A. And the students react, and a couple of them are like, whatever. And then there's one kid who says, hey, I never had no A before. And from that moment on, and not everything's perfect, 
But from that moment on, just having that word spoken over these students, just having been given this thing that they didn't earn, they work up to the standard. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think that's what Jesus does with us. We can't earn his love. We can't live up to his standard. We can't be holy and perfect on our own. God has no right to say to us, well done. God has no right in our standard selves, in our natural condition, to look at us and say, you get an A. And yet in Christ, God comes to us and says, you've made my honor roll. In Christ, God comes to us and says, you are holy. And we look back and we say, what have I done? I haven't done anything. And God says, exactly. You've done nothing to earn it. But it is Christ coming to us and saying, you are the light of the world before we've done anything to shine any light that makes us who we are. It's that which redeems us. It's that which makes us lights in a dark place. And so Jesus looks out over this ragtag group, just as we look at one another and we can say, you are the light of the world. And what does a light do? It shines. It can't help but shine. Sometimes we take this last verse here where Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And we, in our infinite wisdom, make a legalism out of it. We say, oh, I got to be the light of the world. Oh, I got to shine. Oh, I got to do this before people. I got to do that before people. And we make a law out of what Jesus has said here. But remember what we said about the nature of light earlier. Light can't help but shine. Light shines. It's what it does. It is what light is. Light can do nothing else but shine. If we find ourselves having to work to shine and be light in a dark place, we've missed it. We've missed it. So what does it mean then? If it doesn't mean we need to work to make sure that the things we're doing are seen by everybody so that they can glorify God, what does it mean to be light? If it doesn't mean to work at it, if it doesn't mean that i got to create a set of rules for myself to follow so other people will see my life and glorify God, what does it mean? I think it means first that we have to be light. We have to be the light, which means we have to know the light, which means we have to rest in the light. We have to be connected to the light. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, it's, it's not our lights that are shining. It's him that's shining through us. It's the light of Christ. It's the light of God. It's the revealing light that shines through us. And if we want to be light, we don't need to work on our moral character. If we want to be light, we don't need to work on what causes we support. If we want to be light, these are not the things that will make us light. Those are the consequences of being light. Our character develops as we are connected to the light. We pursue justice and goodness for the world as a result of being in the light, not to get to it. So if we want to be light, we have to begin by centering ourselves in Christ. 
centering ourselves in Jesus. Like I said on Christmas Eve, dropping the yokes that we carry and taking on the yoke of Jesus. Knowing him, loving him, understanding who he is, being saturated in his words and in his life, truly walking in the way of Jesus. This is why we must cultivate our devotional lives. This is why first and foremost, as followers of Jesus, before we undertake to do anything, we've got to sit with our King. We've got to sit with our Savior. We've got to know Him intimately. Those disciples who followed Jesus early on, those guys who became apostles, those 12, they didn't do much for Jesus for a long time. They spent those first years walking with Jesus, listening to Jesus, sleeping next to Jesus, breaking bread with Jesus, listening to Jesus, basking in his presence, learning the way of life from their rabbi. My friends, if we undertake to do a bunch of stuff for God before we have simply been with God and been with Jesus, we will be doing it under our own steam and we will fail. If we want to be light, we have to be with the light. If we want to be the light of the world, we have got to just be with the light of the world. Understand who he is. Let him wash our sin away. Let him redeem us. Let him transform us. Let him work on our character. Let him develop us. The other way that we sometimes do this is you have to let your light so shine before others as they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Some people have taken that as license to just be obnoxious. There are those who, who take that as license to go out onto street corners and just scream at everybody who walks by. And I don't know anybody who has ever been saved because they got yelled at by a sign-wearing street corner preacher. If they did, that was all the Holy Spirit using that and it wasn't nothing to do with the guy who was on the corner. Some people have taken this as license just to beat people over the head. They've taken this as license to be as obnoxious as possible because i got to let my light be seen. you got to know everything I think about anything because everything I think is right and holy and good. And so they feel like their opinions have to be known all the time. And they feel like if you're not as obnoxious as they are, you're not living up to Jesus like they are. Here's the irony of our light shining. The irony of following Jesus and of influencing people for Jesus is that most people in your life, most people who just see you on the street will never know you as a follower of Jesus. They won't be able to look at you walking down the street and say, there's a man who follows Jesus. I can tell by the gait of his walk. I can tell by the way he carries his head. I can tell by the way he holds his Bible in the air and screams at me. Most of the people you encounter won't necessarily know that you are different, that your light is shining, and that's okay. If we are truly following Jesus, allowing our character to be transformed by him, it will be by knowing us that people see Christ in us. It will be, it'll be by in being involved in our lives and seeing the ways that we do things that are different from the world. There will be those times when we do things that are just weird or we do things that are different and we have an opportunity to point to Jesus, but those will be few and far between. 
I once taught sex ed. I know, that was fun, right? I taught sex ed in high schools my first couple of years in Boston uh, this, to supplement my income. And uh, I was a virgin at the time and uh, was a virgin when I got married. My wife is the only woman I've ever known that way. Um, and so this, this program that I was teaching for was a combination of comprehensive sex ed and abstinence education. And part of that was kind of sharing with the students our own experiences and our own journeys. And I would step into these schools, these tough schools in Boston, and I would start to share my story as a 23-year-old dude who had never had sex before. And I remember guys in those classrooms, their mouths would just drop to the floor. Because they knew I'd been to college, I had a degree, or else I couldn't teach. And so a couple of times these guys were like, how did you get through college a virgin? And there it was. There's my in. There's my in to talk about Jesus. Right? I honor Jesus with my body. I honor God with my body. And therefore, I chose to live in this way and to honor the lives of the women in my lives and their bodies as God had created them. But those kind of opportunities, they're not the norm for the Christian. They're not the norm for our lives. Not in public settings. It's through knowing us. It's through knowing God's people, seeing the difference of our lives, seeing the ways that we don't go along with the culture, hearing about our weird opinions and ideas and beliefs because we don't fit easily into one party or one idealistic system or one thing or the other. It'll be through knowing us. Just as Jesus has transformed you by that intimate relationship that you have with him, you get to reveal God and be the light of the world and bring people to a life with Christ in the same gentle way that Jesus has drawn you. That's what it means to be the light of the world. It means to be faithful in the small things. To let our light shine, not to force it on people. It means to be with Jesus. To be transformed and conformed to who Jesus is so that as people get to know us, they go, wait a minute. You're different. There's something weird about you. You care for those people and you care for those people and you refuse to be baited into these ridiculous arguments and you're patient and you're kind and you take your time and you're not busied and rushed and you love you love in a way I've never seen before. And you're firm on your convictions, but you're soft toward me. To let our light shine will be allowed to allow the character of Jesus to shine brightly through us so as people get to know us, they get to know him. That's my only goal in life. And I hope it's yours. At the end of the day, I want your time with me to be time spent with Jesus. And I want others' time with you to be time spent with Jesus. I want people to walk away from our relationships going, I think I just spent a little time with God. I think I just spent a little time with Jesus. I want people walk, to walk away going, God must love me. God must want me. 
God, thank you. Thank you for the love that you have poured out for us in Christ. Thank you that you call us the light of the world before we have even let your light shine. Thank you that you call us holy before we have done a thing to merit it. Thank you that you have called us righteous even in our unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given us your sinlessness. You've given us your holiness. You've given us your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the light that shines through us. And God, may we be a bright beacon in dark places. Teach us, Lord, to rely wholly on you. Teach us, Jesus, to be your light. To bring life to all of the dark and dying places where we step. And to take every opportunity to point people back to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.